For June 26th, 2017, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 469, The Various Rich Valleys. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than we uh, when we're hanging out together, uh, watching the things we like, the movies, the TV, listening to the music, reading the books, playing the video games, and then talking about it. Talking about it together is, uh, is half the fun, and we're very glad to share that fun with you on this podcast. I'm Matt Rather. I am joined by Overthinkers Peter Fenzel. Hello, Matt. And Mark Lee. Hey, Matthew. All right. Today, prestige comedies. Are they funny? Do they make you laugh? Let's find out. It's, is uh, it even a thing? Is, is that, it even a thing? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. It's, so uh, here's the background on this. The, Netflix dropped in, in short order uh, the second season of Master of None. Don't know why it took like two years to make a second season of Master of None, uh, but, but I guess it did. And uh, we were watching it. And Glow, uh, Gordon. Just ladies of wrestling, a fictional, uh, fictionalized uh, account um, of a real historical uh, thing that happened with a women's wrestling show uh, that there is also a documentary about on Netflix. But this happens in the context of uh, what I'm going to call the post-arrested development um, lineage of 30 minute comedies or 22 minutes on on network and you know 30 minutes plus or minus on uh, any of the streaming services any of the non-commercial television ser- services so let's just let's just put all these out um on the table uh arrested development is definitely one 30 rock may or may not be curb your enthusiasm definitely one veep definitely one uh kimmy schmidt maybe maybe not um, uh, catastrophe on Amazon for sure. Master of None and Glow, I think, um, inarguably, Defin- definitely, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so, so here's a, I mean, here's a question, and I want to throw this to our uh, resident comedic uh, genius and master. <laughs> uh, our he's a he's an improv comedy coach and a very funny man in his own right. Um, he's like Yoda, uh, but for laughs. It's uh, it's Pete Fenzel, um, and and I want to I want to ask this. You always Pete. praise me enough to make me uncomfortable, Matt. I always appreciate. But I, I just I want to like you know it's it's the same way that for yourself you try to lower or manage expectations. For other people, you throw your friends over the bus by like escalating them sky high. Yeah, um, sure. <laughs> can comedy be prestigious? So when I think about prestige, I learned the concept of prestige from the NES classic video game Baseball Stars. Did any of you guys play Baseball Stars? Wait, was this different from ba- was this different from the regular baseball game where you would just oh, yeah. bunt oh, all yes. the Okay. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, definitely. Where you would bunt all the time? No, yeah. Baseball Stars <laughs> is not baseball. It is not RBI baseball. It is not uh, base wars. It is baseball stars. Mark, did you ever play baseball stars? I didn't. No, I played RBI baseball, uh, but none of those other games you mentioned. So one of the cool things about Baseball Stars is it was one of the earlier games in a, in a video game. You could do it with rotisserie for years and things like this. But in, in a video game where you could build a roster of players that you could develop over time who are kind of fictional, right? And you could invest points and you could buy players. You could buy superstars and and put them on your team. You could then buy like super cheap players who had a lot of potential and kind of grow them over time. Uh, or you could buy veterans who didn't have as much potential, but were a better value for now for what they were capable of doing. And it was all themed uh, teams. There was like a team of, of the ghouls that included like Freddie and Jason. It didn't have any actual baseball players. It was all named after sort of goofy themes, right? Like monsters, um, uh, you know, various, various things like that. And there was one team uh, called the Lovely Ladies who were uh, all women. And so it had models for women playing baseball as well. And they were a good team. They were the best team. But the thing what they were was the most prestigious. And prestige was a stat in the game. And you could spend points to get prestige in the game. And what would happen when you got prestige is that more people would come to the game and you would make more money, <laughs> either playing either playing with them on your team or counterintuitively playing against them 
right? So so you would so the best way to make money in the game was to to set up a bunch of matches against the lovely ladies, which would be like uh, you know a guys team playing a girls team, big draw, everyone's excited, everyone comes to see it. Maybe you win, maybe you lose, but you make a lot of money, and you can use that money to develop your players. Uh, so this gave me the idea that prestige is a quality that's associated with how people like you more than about how well you do what you're doing, right? Uh, now, this is counterintuitive because when we talk about prestige, like prestige drama, we're using it as a as an opposite of popular, right? We're, we're, we, when we say prestige, we really mean elite, right? Yes. In a, yeah. And uh, now again, and again, I should say, it, I don't want to be so prescriptivist. The term prestige in this context has come to take on a sense of elite. It, it is a it is a comedy for people who who think of themselves as prestigious because of their esteem or status, not because a lot of people know or care who they are necessarily. Right. Uh, it, it is. It, you could also think of it as as television shows that are talked about more than they are watched, right? Might be another way to think about prestige television, potentially, although I don't think that's the way it's usually intended. Uh, you can so think talk of it about way. in certain media circles more than they are watched. Right. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of think pieces on Vulture, right? Yeah. And so I would think that prestige is associated with esteem and it's associated with the elite. It's associated with a connoisseur's taste is another thing I would say. Uh, that it is a, it, a prestige television, contrary to maybe what we might consider the conventional meaning of the word to be with regards to famousness, is about someone with a refined taste. Uh, you know, and I, I'm kind of conflating different things, right? So, so you can be prestige television and be television for somebody with a refined taste in drama or comedy that has seen a lot of stuff already, is going to be not going to be interested in things that they've seen before, wants to be surprised, wants to be challenged, doesn't really care if the show alienates you a little bit because you're you're ready to extend it a large benefit of the doubt because you know what it's doing, as opposed to somebody who might. Because they haven't seen as many shows or they don't watch as much comedy or drama, they might enjoy the more straight down the middle, uh, conventional, repetitive sort of stuff because it hasn't been repeated as much for them. Right. Like they they don't mind the basic jokes because the basic jokes are good jokes. There's basic because people do them all the time. So if you if you, uh, you know, like, um, you know, ventriloquism, right, like if you've seen a lot of ventriloquism or you find it kind of tedious, uh, but if you've never seen it before, it's awesome. And you can appreciate on a craft level when it's good. um, But at the same time. It's not prestige unless it's like really good in some way, right? So there's the aspect in which it refers to a, a refined taste. But I think when I really sort of dig into what that word, how it lands for me and how it feels, it has to do with that this is a show that is meant to be taken seriously and to have like a, reputa- a reputation of greatness of some kind, right, of, of enlarged sense. And, and when we're talking about prestige film, it also implies a gravity of tone and subject matter, Right. Like a, a sort of seriousness, a sophistication. Right. You have to elevate the dish. You have to have a combination of okay. flavors. You know, so go ahead, Mark. Yeah. So you're, you're throwing around these words like seriousness and gravity. Right. So uh, let's get straight to the point on, on this, which is can comedy have those aspects of seriousness and gravity? And, you know, in, in other words, can comedy be prestigious? Sure. Of course. Okay. Uh, in, in this sense, in this definition of prestige, because comedy is defined. Well, there's comedy and there's humor. Right. And uh, and I tend to think of them as functionally different. And I'm going to say it is defined. I'll say I define it right as I tend to define comedy around the idea of stories that are are I mean, you have to have it directed towards producing laughter. Right. But but that's question begging to a to a to a degree. And it's also not particularly helpful because you can have comedy that's not funny. Right. Right. And then all you're doing all your base. If your definition of comedy is stuff that makes you laugh, then there might be something that doesn't make anybody laugh, but is ostensibly comedy. Right. Like like as in we might want to call it comedy, but because it doesn't make people laugh, we can't call it comedy under the previous rubric unless we make the leap of accepting authorial intent, which is not something that we're generally willing to do. If no, we're no, no. The, the, the author is dead on overthinking it. That's uh, yeah, the author. Yeah, exactly. And it, in a tragedy. Yeah. The author died <laughs> in their bed and a comedy. The author tripped and fell down a manhole. <laughs> <laughs> but there's I mean, there's also like there's a sort of set of generic conventions, genre conventions that have to do with, um, you know, comedy versus tragedy. And and the the hackiest one 
one is like comedy has a happy ending and tragedy has a sad ending. Right. Comedy is a, is a clause that goes up at the end and tragedy is a clause that goes down at the end. Or, uh, or like comedy, you know, the one I like about, uh, one I like is, uh, uh, tragedy is, is about how nothing will ever be the same and comedy is about how nothing will ever change. Um, right. and this is, you know, uh, one that, that we've sort of, that, I feel like we've developed actually on overthinking it and talking about talking about these things over the course of many years together. Uh, really, uh, us talking about this over the course of decades together for what is the podcast, but the continuation of the one great conversation that is never satisfactorily, um, satisfactorily resolved. Um, it's, it's maybe worth bringing up here something that, uh, my teacher and Pete's teacher, um, John Hollander said, uh, in, uh, in college, in a college class that I was in, and I'm sure he repeated it in the college class that, that Pete took with him. Um, the, uh, uh, the thing was that everyone's always talking about, I'm not, I'm not going to do his, I'm not going to do an impression though. Uh, you know, trust me, it would be comedic. Um, th- everyone is always talking about, is this funny or is this serious? Sometimes the answer is yes, right? Uh, because the correct opposition is not funny or serious. The correct opposition, uh, is funny or solemn. And serious or frivolous, right? And there's much solemnity that is very, very frivolous. Uh, and there's a lot that is uh, serious, um, non-frivolous, right? That is quite funny. Uh, that is quite comic. And that, you know, so, so I, think, I think like uh, you have to sort of, you're talking about a couple things like one is ethos or like tone uh another is um or like uh uh, ethos ethos doesn't mean character by the way in the in the 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 terms of in the term of like dramatis personae it means like general quality general you know what i mean like the general the general character of the of the uh of the work so so right like there's that aspect there's like an instrumental uh aspect like does this do good in the world or or is, is this aimed um like is there a kind of legitimate artistic project um and uh, and then there's something about like instrumentality, like like oh sorry that was instrumentality, and then there's something about kind of intrinsic uh, uh, intrinsic qualities, like does does it make you laugh, right? And and so these are all things that um, these are all things that that go in, and and like I you know the thing about a lot of the a lot of the prestige comedies um, is that they don't make you laugh, right? Uh, at, at least not in the way that that. Mm, you know, uh, uh, God, I'm trying to come up with an example that's not problematic. Not in the way that like a Chuck Lorre sitcom makes you laugh. I'm not going yeah. to. I'm not going to name check a particular one because you know your fave is problematic and everything. But like, uh, you know that that style of sitcom is is meant to like provoke laughter uh, every 15 to 20 seconds or so. Yeah. So and there's a metric that's sort of jokingly used, but I think sometimes seriously used uh, in improv circles called LPM. Yeah, laughs, oh, per, laughs uh, per minute, right? Yeah. In, in sitcom in sitcom scripts, like that is not a joke. There's like a laughs yeah. per page metric. Yeah, and so what for me? If I'm really looking for a qualitative difference between something that, because there's a lot of ways that you could define prestige versus non-prestige comedy, and there's not going to be a hard definition. It's it's more of a of a of a sort of scatter plot of different projects that have happened for different reasons. But one thing that seems like a salient difference, having watched a bunch of it to to prepare for this podcast, in addition to the stuff I normally watch, is that there's seems to be a relief on the pressure for early laughs. In, in, in particular, like if you're watching a comedy and there's no laughs in the first five minutes or even like the first three minutes, uh, then you're probably watching a prestige comedy. Right. It, it's and, and the counterpoint to LPM is the idea that you have richer, more satisfying sort of comedic fulfillment. Right. You have expectation and then expectation, either fulfillment or frustration. And you're building. Right. And you're minding. You're taking your time. And then the payoff is just that much better when you play it a little bit slower. Yeah, right. and added to that as well that it's more likely, uh, not impossible, more, or not not required, but more likely to find prestige comedy on streaming services because it allows you to have that slow build up, that slow burn, rather than something that airs on network television, which requires you to get those laughs in very early on uh, before yeah. the first commercial break, and you know to keep you sticking around till after the yeah, commercial break. Yeah, because there's a couple of phenomena, right? One of them is that 
TV, like network TV comedies and cable TV comedies are interrupted all the freaking time. So you don't have the time to build something up, up, up uninterrupted for 10 minutes. You just don't because it's going to have a Pine Saw commercial in the middle of it. Yeah, And, not, and that sassy and Pine Saw lady, she's not letting your tension keep building. She's going to cash it in and, for that Pine Saw. And not everyone so. is willing to be arrested development, right, and just uh, sort of throw caution to the wind with – you know, with that thing, like they, they, there were a lot of slow burns on Arrested mm. Development, like season level, uh, sort of recurring jokes where something would not pay for a long, long, long time. And I feel like when it did, well, I, there was a, like a fan service element to that because when it did pay, it made you feel good for, for sort of noticing it. But also, uh, you know, also beyond that, like it just like because of the length of the buildup and the immense amount of tension that it, that had been uh, yeah. established, it, it right. exploded bigger. Not coincidentally, it only lasted three seasons on Fox. <laughs> So so to bring it into a specific example, the season two premiere of Master of None is a full length homage parody of Vittorio De Sica's classic Italian neorealist film Bicycle Thieves or The Bicycle Thief. Right. Uh, So I guess this brings us to another characteristic of these sorts of things, which is that prestige comedy uh, it, it is is very clearly not catering to everybody, right? Like it's not try it's not trying to be. Well, I shouldn't say it's not trying to be because that's imprecise and lazy. But uh, that that it rewards a niche interest on behalf of the viewer, right? So not everybody who turns on Netflix is going to be familiar with the with Italian cinema of the 1940s and 50s, right? Uh, which is a style and and there's like specific plot points. From this movie that is in the season two premiere of Master of None. It's called Thief, right? And it's it's about Aziz Ansari losing his cell phone in a small city in Italy and going around with like a little Italian boy uh, looking for the cell phone and just being full, filled with despair at seeing all the other people who have cell phones and how they get to sort of carry on with their lives as normal and then getting involved in a bunch of misunderstandings with other people with regards to his desire for his cell phone. Right. And there's like there's there's even an involvement of football players, of like soccer players. Right. In in uh, the Aziz Ansari sh- uh, episode, as there is in the movie, the uh, the bicycle thief. Uh, you guys saw you saw the, the thief episode, right? Because uh, I Master saw the episode. Of- I, I'm not familiar so much with the Italian film that it's it's parodying or homaging. Um, but now that you're explaining all this, I'm enjoying it all that much more. <laughs> here is here is your here is your uh, you know fancy college education cocktail party tidbit about uh, De Sica's bicycle thieves. Uh, the uh, you know and the the whole point of fancy education being to give you like 45 second tidbits to talk about uh, at cocktail at all the cocktail parties you'll be invited to as a graduate of a you know um, super fancy stick up the butt educational institution prestigious educational oh. um it's that the title is plural uh lardi de bisa bicicleta right and uh and so the it is bicycle thieves not the bicycle thief as it's usually translated in um in the United States, uh, because it's about a whole class of people. Like everyone's a bicycle thief. All these people are, are bicycle thieves. And like when he doesn't find the bicycle thief at the end or when it's like, you know, the bicycle thief is just as miserable as he is. Everyone's miserable. Everyone might steal a bicycle under the right circumstances. We're all, we're all bicycle thieves. But, uh, I, I haven't seen season two of, of, uh, I haven't seen season two of master of none. So, so you're going to have to, uh, I don't know. You're going to have to well, fill me in. Okay. Well, let's get into this because you've seen season one, right? And I am told by reliable sources that you did not enjoy it. It seems which is, like uh, real good uh, fodder for those cocktail party conversations. Let me, let me I mean, tell you. You really stir the pot on I this because, so. because in these circles, right? The Master of None is regarded as like a prime example of prestige comedy and it seems to be beloved by everybody with the fancy prestigious education it's so like matt too, it's too didactic what, what, your... right like in in elementary school we would do skits at assemblies about like following the rules like the uh it was very cute the kindergartners would do them like about not you know cutting in line or not you know uh, i taking more than one share at the snack time or something like that. Like to, you know, basic everything I, you need to know, learning kindergarten type stuff. And like, to me, master of none is, uh, you know, it's dressed up with a, a, a veneer of complexity, but it's not too much 
more than that. Like it's, it just seems, it's sort of, it seems like didactic sketches, right? Uh, rather than a sort of fully developed, uh, rather than sort of fully developed characters that you get, um, uh, that you sort of get involved with in in kind of a level of of humanity or the 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 humanity you know but Matt no it's so complicated it's about the complexities of modern life and dating and and relationships and friendships and what you we owe each other and what's the yeah but the the whole you know the the whole thing about the complexity of the characters in Master of None is that like they're they're kind of glibly complex right they're not I don't know they're not deeply I, I, i'm hearing all these things you're saying matt and i'm thinking features not bug what do you think about master of none so I'll, I'll make it specific again so the second episode of the second season of master of none is a lot like how matt is describing it and, and, I'll, and i'll tell you why it's about two dudes big bro and little with big bud and little bud right he has yeah. a friend who's like six eight and as he's sorry is very short and the, the tall friend visits him in Italy, and it's revealed that he's there, in fact, to go to uh, the wedding to someone else of a very long-term ex-girlfriend, somebody he dated for like 11 years, right? And that this is a very emotionally weighted time for him. And so there is this, and it's all shot in this sort of pacing where the necessity of an immediate joke isn't really there, so it kind of feels like prestige. And there are sort of things that are done and shown that appeal to an audience that has the interests of a, of a sort of upper classy kind of person. But the actual jokes are very simple. And the main joke is that they love to eat. That's like the main joke of the whole episode where it's like he's coming to Italy and it's like, so what do you want to do? And look at it. Look at all this place. We got so much beautiful architecture and history and I don't really know history and, and all this stuff. And he's like, uh, what, so what are you going to do? He's like, well, I was thinking we would just eat all day. And he's like, uh, I'm on board. I'm down. Eat all day and Instagram. And it, yeah, it's just all eating day. all day yeah. and Instagramming all day. And, and there's a running gag where they're tweeting. They're tweeting high cuties. They're sending they're taking pictures of themselves eating Italian food in Italy and texting it to women in New York uh, on, on like online dating sites. Right. And that that's all that they're doing. And so there's a lot of like even when the the subject matter gets to be like really heavy about aging and about relationships failing, like the guy is about to confront his ex and sort of he says he says he's just going to talk to her, but he's going to he's going to profess his love for her and ask her to come back. And he keeps trying to do this. And Aziz Ansari has to keep stopping him. And there's this very cheesy, like, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of the right reference. It's not even a um, like a Jack Benny gag where in order to calm him down, Aziz Ansari keeps feeding him melon. Right. And there's just this running joke that everything they eat in Italy is just so delicious. And he's like, I'm going to tell her I'm going to oh, this melon is so good, right? He gets, like, <laughs> calmed down by the melon, and he just keeps feeding him the melon, and he keeps calming down. Um, so I would say that this is pretty much exactly what Matt's talking about, right, is that it speaks to uh, a, an experience of an audience that sees themselves as sophisticated and has sophisticated tastes, and it and it, it, ver- it validates that by reflecting it and mirroring it back to the audience. Uh, and then the characters have a bunch of complex character development, but the actual comic action is like super duper, like like 40s or 50s level simple in terms of what the jokes are, right? It's just like sight gags and like foibles and like, uh, you know, we're doing the same thing over and over again. I mean, it's that way with, and I mean, other than the, the Bicycle Thief, it's a bunch of straight up parody stuff, right? Uh, like in the Bicycle Thief episode, there's the little boy who keeps, every every time he asks him something, he's like, oh, well, I'm going to go on vacation. When you come on vacation, you're going to visit me in New York? He's like, I am a child. I don't go on vacation. <laughs> it's like everything is like, I'm a bambino. I'm a child. I don't have a job. I don't have a telephone, <laughs> right? And it's like, it's just yeah. over and over and over. And so you have to like that kind of pacing. And those kinds of very simple jokes. And you have to not be troubled by the lack of kind of coherence between the sophistication of the environment and the simplicity of the jokes. Yeah, well, let me extend this a little bit. And because uh, you're talking about these simple jokes that are given the trappings of these prestigious or, or sort of different things. Right. You know, the upper class sensibility or and, and as well, the sort of the unconventional or non-traditional comedic framing where there's a lot of like slow burns. Right. I'm particularly going to point out a couple of. The, for lack of a better word, high concept or uh, or uh, special episodes of Master of None. The first season, um, the off the much discussed parents episode, right, where 
um, uh, Aziz Ansari's character, um, who is an Indian American background, and his friend, who's of uh, Chinese American background, uh, they go into their respective parents' immigrant backstories and all the struggles they, they took to allow their children to have this precious Instagrammed uh, privileged life. Right. And uh, it's been a while since I've seen that specific episode, but I think it also falls in the category of simple jokes, um, but with uh, sophisticated trapping. And likewise, in season episode two, I'm not going to spoil this too much, but the New York, the New York I Love You episode, um, which, uh, again, has a sophisticated wrapping of kind of a following uh, multiple, maybe four or five different uh, storylines of New Yorkers. Um, and they all converge uh, at, at the end, uh, and they're all, they're all different things that uh, bind them together. The jokes along the way are not particularly sophisticated. You know, there's uh, someone, a cabbie, who is annoyed that his movie's getting spoiled. Uh, there's a, a sign language thing going on. It involves a very funny scene where um, these couple are, 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 are having an argument, and they're talking about their, <laughs> their respective genitals in sign language, and then a parent uh, angrily comes up in signs and says, why are you using this dirty language in front of my children? <laughs> and the children run around uh, signing uh, uh, the word for, for the genitals again. But uh, all that is to say that uh, those are, you know, Mastermind has a lot of different examples of this. And uh, going back to Matt's point, you know, you could see that as a failing of sorts, but uh, I, uh, I enjoy it. I, it speaks to me a lot. And um, if it's a shallow thing that says that, uh, you know, I take pleasure in that prestige and feel validated in uh, whatever prestige I feel like I need in my life, then then, then so be it. No, if that's being fine. wrong, you're I don't want to be right. You're, you're fine. No one let anyone – don't let some – dickhead on a podcast tell you not to like the thing you like my goodness yeah exactly yeah no dickhead but especially this one um the yeah no like the like the thing you like you know Uh, it's like it's fine sometimes for someone to say yeah it's just not for me it's, it's interesting. I would contrast now. So here we're kind of zeroing in on some new thoughts about prestige comedy. I contrast master of none with unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. They're almost exactly opposite in this respect, where I feel like Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt has a very simple uh, structure, right? It's a very, it's almost like a three camera sitcom, almost, right? It's not quite, I don't think it's quite that, but it's like the characters on the surface level are very sitcom y in their tone and presentation. The way that the plots of the episode progress feels very 90s ish, right? In line with the whole idea that she's sort of been lost for a long time in this bunker and has only recently come back. But the individual jokes are sometimes like surprisingly complicated. Um, I mean, I'm thinking in particular, there's one joke in the most recent season three of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt that keeps coming back, which is kind of shoved off the first time, which is that um, have you watched, by the way, have you watched season three of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt? Yeah, I haven't. No, I fell off after season two. So so there's a thing where there's uh, the character who wants to run the character who gets elected to city council in order because she uh, opposes gentrification right she wants to oppose gentrification she's elected to the city council and the city and there's a sort of a whole foods analog that is trying to build a restaurant in a rundown neighborhood that uh, you know this person doesn't want to see gentrified and the run, there's a running joke throughout that the whole foods place is called big naturals and that it shares a name with a strip club that's like a couple blocks away <laughs> from the site of the new Whole Foods. And I mean, yes, that then. So this is an interesting joke because on a surface level, it's like a booby joke, right? It's like a it's an anatomy joke. It's a crass joke. But then this this idea of like the it's a joke about how organic grocery stores name themselves. Right. And and there's this sort of like you could dig into it and be like, it's, it's kind of like a. Uh, the mother goddess, right? And you could talk about organic foods and their connection to kind of uh, the eternal agrarian feminine, right? And this idea that like how how many different brands of organic foods they could come up with that have this sort of like motherly connotation, right? Like you know the the you know the various rich valleys, you know the various sort of like uh, I'm trying to think of what are some good organic brands that um, that that sound like they could be references to women. Right. And their bodies. Uh, and then and, and there's sort of like, um, oh, sure. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. Yeah. Like, gentle, oh, all, you know, the Whole Foods house brand is like whole 360 or something like that. Well, well that, just, no, that's, that, know, that's their game. generic. But yeah, exactly. And it's like but it's like it's interesting that they expect their audience to care about the naming of boutique fancy grocery stores as like a joke. Right. The, the, in, in, in Aziz Ansari's store, in Aziz Ansari's joke, the joke would not be 
that the Whole Foods that Whole Foods names itself in a funny way. Right. The joke would be that, like, you go to Whole Foods and then, like, the checkout counter is really bad. Right. Or something like that. It would it would be some sort of much yeah, it simpler, would be like, universal. It, yeah. As you said, sorry, like uh, the joke from South Park a couple seasons ago where they open a Whole Foods in the gentrifying section of, of South Park. And like there's this long uh, running bit about uh, being asked to donate a dollar. Um, to some cause or another at the at the checkout and like having the little thing on screen uh, on the the credit card machine that asks you to donate a dollar to you know clean water somewhere or you know some some uh, some other worthy cause and the uh, people want not to do it but they also want to uh, not look bad in front of other people and they're publicly shamed if if they are like that's the it maybe goes to a slightly more absurd place in in South Park but that would be like you know, uh, you could you could imagine Aziz Ansari going through um, going through the checkout and then sitting down with his friends, you know, at the cafe and being like, "You guys, what's the deal with the thing and the what's the deal with the the thing?" I mean, I feel like I should give to it, but I shouldn't give to it. What am I supposed to do? Oh, life is complicated. I'd watch that. <laughs> yeah. Hey, speaking I, of South I'd Park, watch that. I'd watch of, the speaking, f out of that. Speaking of South Park, is South Park prestige comedy <laughs> no <laughs> yeah. do you remember the show after they won an emmy for the first time it was the show about the giant turd and everyone is like come here come here look in the toilet at this big poop and at oh the mr hanky no it wasn't mr hanky the nope. christmas poop it was just a big non <laughs> non-anthropomorphic <laughs> poop <laughs> In the uh, <laughs> in the in the toilet, and like of course, like this escalated and escalated by the poops getting bigger and bigger uh, until there was like a you know room filling room filling turd at the end uh, of the episode, and uh, there you know. Uh, Periodically through the uh, through the episode, there was a Chiron. There was a title at the bottom that said like Emmy winning show with a little Emmy thing, <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> and so they they at the end, um, one of the boys uh, walks up to the Chiron in a kind of meta move, reaches into the Chiron, pulls the Emmy statue out of the title, the overlaid title, and shoves it headfirst into the giant room filling turd on uh, on the thing. No, South Park is not. Pres- Prestige television. And, Why not? Uh, yeah. Well, I'll make another proposition. Right. Room, so I, room I think- filling turd. Room filling <laughs> giant. Just like like gargantuan. It in the fifties. It would be a horror movie, and this turd would be all out to get us. <laughs> so here's another proposition. So the main reason that South Park is superficially a lot like a lot of prestige comedies, but it actively resists being a prestige comedy. And this would bring us to one of the other shows that we watched, which is GLOW, right? Uh, Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling is what, is the, what the acronym stands mm, for, I believe. Yeah. yeah, it does. Go on. And so, and this is also true of, say, Orange is the New Black. One of the, so if, if the, one of the characteristics of a prestige comedy is that it releases, it releases itself from the, uh, the responsibility or the sort of charge of appealing to an audience that is not self-selecting, Right. Like that, that, um, and then that actually way too many negatives. So I'll rephrase that. With a prestige comedy, you, the audience of a prestige comedy is expected to self select for the comedy. Uh, no, sorry, the audience expects to select itself for the comedy right. based on the things that it knows about itself and the things that it wants to see. So whereas like a non-prestige comedy blasts itself out to as many people as possible and tries to attract as many people as possible to come see it. Right. And so uh, and and so it's different. Right. It's about what do you think about yourself and how much do you identify about yourself with respect to this comedy that you watch and how specific and narrow is the thing that you expect to define about yourself. Now, with Origins of the New Black and Glow, it's not narrow. Right. It's it's women. And in particular, um, women who are interested in women's stories, right? And the sort of, especially women who are interested in the dearth of women's stories in television, uh, because both shows are concerned. I mean, Glow on a, like, we are going to come out and say it in the first 15 minutes of the, pi- the first minute of the pilot, right? The first, like, minute and a half of the pilot, we are going to come out and say that this show is about how there aren't good roles for actresses in shows, right? right. Um, and, and this tells you, it's a signal, right? It's a, it's a virtue signal about what the show is going to be about. This is not a bad thing. 
this is a good thing because the, you know the, if you care about this as as a thing um, as a as a trend as a value, then you're going to potentially want a show that cares about it, and it, maybe it's part of the landscape now. That to be that show, you have to identify yourself as that show so that the pressure to a, to not drive away the people who would vehemently disagree with you, so that pressure doesn't force you to abandon your mission, right? You have to find a platform that will let you do it. And that's, that's I feel like, what Orange is the New Black and Glow both do. Um, although, Orange is the New Black, I guess it's a comedy, right? It, it's, a, it's a little bit of both. It's kind of in the middle. I didn't watch the—I only watched the first season of that show. Um, but, uh, but with glow, they're constantly talking about the role of women, uh, and, and they're constantly talking about how they're trying to empower themselves and they're trying to tell their own stories. Right. And, and it's very much about like their real lives as well as their performative lives. And, and so now granted, I've seen conflicting takes from women who I would defer to over myself and my own opinion about whether this is like a truly empowering show or not, um, as to like whether it's successful or a failure or or what have you, but it is concerned with it, right? And it, and it sets itself apart by the concerning. And that and South Park seems to try to strike a tone of concern that is trying to drive away the idea that they're 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 that they're that they're appealing to a narrow self-selected audience. Whereas they kind of are, right? Sort of. But they're trying to say that they aren't. And part of this is because they are pretty comfortably in hegemonic discourse in a lot of things, right? Like dudes and farts and and stuff that's been on TV for a long time. And big poops. They, yeah. yeah. And big poops. Yeah. So no, go ahead, Matt. I, I would say that the, the, another aspect of it is that South Park will, will reliably prioritize uh, sensation, sensationalism, by which I mean uh, arousing sensation. Right over any kind of theoretical uh, rigor that you might wish that South Park had, right? Mm, yeah, Th- that uh, you know they're they're going to chase after where they think the where they think the big laughs are, and this is a bit you know this is a, a fig leaf that a lot of comedy uses, um, you know, to defend against charges of uh various kinds of uh, undesirable political effects undesirable kind of uh externalities right like uh well look i'm just making uh i'm just making jokes it's funny like i'm going to say th- i'm going to say the things that are funny without regard to whether i think that the the sentiments that i am saying are socially laudable um and uh, and south park is definitely on that uh is definitely on that that train you know family as well. guy as well in a big way i think if we, yeah, family guy more i mean south park at least has the idea of some sort of responsibility to uh, you know the responsibility of art that to say something true <laughs> right like that and and family guy is just like is almost pure sensation it's this it's this taken to its kind of most adolescent extreme and i say this despite the kind of sophistication of reference of of certain you know certain jokes in 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 family guy um there was a Dorian Gray reference, which I'll never forget. Um, it still so, stood out. I've never read so maybe, Dorian Gray myself. Maybe one of the ways to describe prestige comedy is that it's comedy where the audience has already invested the energy to stay to pay attention to it for one reason or another, right? If you're watching a comedy show and you're saying, like, I have decided that this is a show that I want to watch, and the show does not, you know, give you back something for your investment for a little while and you keep watching because you made that investment in the show. This is the phenomenon that we're talking about when we're talking about what is the prestige? It's whatever that currency is that allows you to that allows the show to stay on. That that keeps you from turning the show off. Uh, so I, I'll give you an example, right? So have you guys watched I, I assume not, and I don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast yet. Amazon tried to reboot the tick. Did you guys watch any of this? No. It's terrible. Uh, I would not recommend it. I, the, the Amazon remade, or they didn't remake. Amazon made a new live action pilot for the Tick, or at least they bought it or they put it on or something. And there was some talk. I don't know if they ever came out with the rest of the first season, but it's been up for a while. And they have the first episode, and it's got the pacing. It feels like Master of None, and it feels kind of like Glow, right? In that it's slower, and the character you have a lot of time to watch the characters suffer. And you have a lot of time to hear the characters talk about what they care about in their lives. And uh, and it really expects you to hang in there, right? Because it assumes that you've turned the tick on because you really care about the tick, I guess. 
Now, I love The Tick, granted, but The Tick is not a prestige company, right? The Tick is a, a comic strip, sort of a laugh factory kind of thing, right? Like, and by which I mean, it's an LPM. Like, The Tick is funny. And The Tick is consistently funny, and it's full of gags, right? And it's very lighthearted, and it has a lot of whimsy. Uh, and I guess that's the other thing I would say is that one of the reasons why I say Kimmy Schmidt is maybe not quite a, a prestige comedy is because the tone whimsy, too much whimsy ruins the tone of prestige comedy and makes it feel not like prestige, uh, which I don't know what effect that has on this whole sort of buy in theory of sort of activation energy. Right. It's sort of like uh, that that prestige comedy has come with the battery half charged rather than the battery totally run out and uh, and um, Sheldon furiously pedaling to get but, it back up to speed. <laughs> that's, that's funny because he's a nerd, but his girlfriend's hot. Or is his girlfriend's hot or someone else's that show is That show is, is very good, I, I'm going to say. I think that show is very good at doing what it does. And the conversation of what exactly it is doing oh, is, is, it, is too is often it, podcast. Is it excellently crafted? Like, no doubt. You don't get – oh, yeah. you don't – yeah, unless you make a like perfect exemplar. I just looked at I just looked at the tick. So the the um the the pilot is up and so this is before they staffed up the writers room and really sort of delivered the the first season which I think is uh which I think is yet to come and I guess we'll see how the uh we'll see how the tone plays out over the course of the um over the course of the season. But but I mean Pete I feel I, I feel like we're talking about two distinct things and we're conflating them and i want to i want to sort of tease them out one is the kind of the economic phenomenon of niche comedies that are are enabled by subscription services that don't need to have mass appeal because you're not selling on uh you're not selling to advertisers brand advertisers who want like as many impressions as possible right um and uh you can also diversify so like netflix can do uh, a whole bunch of shows like you know what like find a friend who is demographically different from you across as many as many different spectra as you can find and go look at their netflix it, their list of recommendations their list of like people who watch this also like and their 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 list of like recommended for you will be will shock you will be entirely different from from yours to the point where it's almost like a different television channel right it's like uh, uh they're watching g4 i don't know if g4 is still a thing they're watching g4 and you're watching discovery and someone else is watching pbs or something like that right like it'll be uh and and someone else is watching hgtv and someone else is watching i you know i don't know bbc america it'll be right like it'll be like like that it's uh you know so they're they're like um their strategy is to sort of segment and then to serve these to sort of serve these different segments of the market but i think that not all of the shows that do that right qualify as prestige because Kim, Kimmy Schmidt is a niche show that's definitely pre-sold to a demographic segment um that doesn't necessarily have to make the case for itself uh on an LPM basis but you know it may not be it may not be quote unquote prestige comedy because it doesn't um Mm, there isn't a, a, a sort of case for authority uh, about, you know, in a in a discourse of sort of recognized social merit. You know what I mean? Though, yeah, I don't know, right? Like, uh, uh, there's also, well, there's also, there's a kind of reversion in every episode or at least season of Kimmy Schmidt. Like, if, if she's still that naive, it's... Um, I, I, I don't know. I'm reminded of something that I heard Jillian uh, uh, Anderson once say about about Scully, and she was talking with the the people who made the X Files, and saying like, after all of this, like it's plain as day to anyone, right? Like um, the the that the aliens are real, like the nosebleed thing. Like, come on, nosebleed, real alien, right? This is this is the thing that we know. Why why doesn't she see this? And they talked about sort of skepticism as being uh, a paradigm, right? Like as being a, a sort of f- filter, an experiential filter through which everything is filtered. And it's not that the the character is dumb, and it's not that she's pigheadedly stubborn. It's that she has this this particular. 
uh, this particular filter. And one of the things that we like about about television shows, like one of the things we liked about Thirty Rock, was we liked the uh, Jack Donaghy filter, the Tracy Jordan filter, and the Liz Lemon filter, and the kind of the the triangle of those made made for an interesting, um, you know, made for an interesting kind of three perspectives, uh, multiple lenses on every on every situation on on everything that happened. And I'm try- I don't know I'm trying to like link this up to the kind of the uh, kind of trying to to link this up to the to the prestige ones, but one one um, well that that I love that I that I just absolutely adore is uh, is catastrophe, which is a show on Amazon. Um, there are three seasons of it now, and uh, it's. Um, it's a uh, oh I'm terrible with names. I don't I don't I especially don't know the names of uh, of British people. Sharon Horgan and Rob Delaney uh, are the the creators and the stars of this show, um, Catastrophe. And the uh, the two things about um, the two things uh, the the uh, the scenario of the show is that um, he uh, they uh, he's in London for a business trip. They end up having a fling, and she gets pregnant from it. And they end up staying staying together and starting a starting a relationship. And it so it is the the kind of the uh, cutest sort of knocked up y premise, and then you know just gets dark, right? <laughs> like and it's it's uh, it's wonderful. It's it's so the thing I love about it like is that it's so human and that it will never sacrifice it is sort of anti-sensational right it will never sacrifice the um like telling a a story that that feels real uh and sort of fighting and even like late in later when they have problems in their marriage and like just you know normal life stuff happens to them it it will never sort of soft pedal uh any of the stuff that in in favor of the the sensation of of a laugh it's also hilarious because they just sort of they mine the the awkwardness and absurdity of of actual life uh in a way that that does not you know it's not super on the nose but it's it's uh it's uh, sublime in a, in a particular way uh it helps that the performances are also very very good um that uh, uh you know that 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 this is the thing um this didn't sort of arrive this this strikes me as almost a counterexample Pete, to to what you're saying it didn't arrive pre-sold to i mean it it if anything it's a uh it's um a bait and switch, right? Because it seems um, seems like it's this this concept, this sort of cutesy concept of a of a sort of unplanned pre- pregnancy, uh, and the two partners end up staying together and trying to make a go of it as as a relationship, and hijinks ensue. Uh, and it's not; uh, it ends up not being that. It ends up being something less. Uh, I don't know, sort of less user friendly, less kind of marketer friendly, and um, a lot more, a lot more sort of strange and strange and wonderful. So, so it's sort of this prestige comedy is sort of pre-sold, uh, pre-sold on concept, but then just pulls the rug out from under the concept and and doesn't keep going. I don't know. Have I have either of you uh, watched uh, Catastrophe? Just a little bit. Um, I, I, I'm probably not long enough to see the rug get pulled out from under me, though. But to, to going back to this whole notion of like pre-sold, um, I believe Rob Delaney had a bit of a following. Um, has had has a bit of a following uh, prior to catastrophe. Right? Well, sure. A lot of these a lot of these shows are kind of like Master of None with Aziz Ansari, and you know, I, I don't know House of Cards with with uh, Kevin Spacey and uh, the uh, Will Arnett and Flaked, and like a lot of this, you know, a lot of these are built around like sitcoms have been for time immemorial, right? Like uh, Roseanne or or the Problematic Show or you know uh, other things like the the uh, they're built around personal. Personalities and often have the name of the personality in the uh, uh, in the title of the show. I think sure. that you know, go, go ahead. Go, go, no, go ahead. So what I was going to suggest is that maybe for both prestige drama and prestige comedy in the United States, we might be looking to some similarities, either direct similarities that pass down kind of genealogically through successors and and imitation or 
convergent similarities between prestige comedy on premium cable and streaming services and in the United States and comedy in Britain in on public television channels, right? Because similar the similarity is there, I guess there's not as much pressure to serve the commercial interests of the station. Like not quite. Right. But part of part of the part of the effect in Britain and, and part of the sort of dynamic, rather, the sort of complex model and dynamic in Britain is that you have shorter series, right? You have series instead of seasons, which implies that the show isn't necessarily going to keep going. And uh, you don't have these like giant shows with tons and tons of episodes in a series. You might have shows that have lots and lots of episodes, but it builds up over like a very long time. And the pacing of, of the British sense of humor and sensibility tends to have a bit of a slower burn a lot of the time. And and that has to do with kind of comedy of manners, right? Um, and, and I would say that that this is goes to another meaning of the word prestige, which is the idea that it's about wealth, right? That wealth, that the admiration of prestige is, and this goes back to lovely ladies and baseball stars, that prestige is about money, right? One of my good friends, a good friend of the podcast, who I won't name because he's asked not to be named on the podcast, always used to tell me, you know, Pete, if a company ever says, whenever someone ever tells you a company is prestigious, what that means is they pay a lot of money, right? That's what it means. And and what I mean by that is not that you make a lot of money making, making comedies for Channel 4, but what I mean is that... There's a the audience for say like well I mean I'm thinking about Downton Abbey which appeared on Masterpiece Theater right like I'm, I'm thinking about Masterpiece as an institution which is really the way that a lot of British television made its way to the United States for a long time and it's associated with uh, money right and it's, and 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 even as sort of the transatlantic accent in the United States is associated with money and boarding school education and and there's a sense that, yes, in Britain you have high culture and low culture also, and you have high comedy and low comedy also, Lord knows, Benny Hill and all that, right? But but the high comedy in Britain and even the medium comedy in Britain can feel like really high comedy in the United States because there's this association of wealthy Americans with like a fondness for, for Britain, which I see like, I feel like in recent decades has waned off as as sort of Davos man phenomenon has happened and Americans have become more global, especially rich ones, and the sort of tie to Europe and France and Britain in particular is not as important. But you know what I mean? That 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 there's something prestigious about comedy that resembles British comedy because British comedy has been enjoyed. The people who had the opportunity to watch British comedy have generally been rich people. I mean, there's right? there's um, an, there's another aspect to what you're talking about, which is like the funding model, right? Like the the economic model. The BBC is yeah. is member funded. The BBC, to a certain extent, I mean, it's more like a, a hybrid of PBS and Netflix, but like it was license payer funded uh, before Netflix was a thing. And so, because it's this is sort of a public funding, um, the. Uh, because it's a it's publicly funded everything has to kind of make the case for why it deserves that public subsidy you know so there is a there's a sense of kind of prestige in terms of like uh socially worthy right in addition to to uh to prestige uh in terms of being um what uh uh less than immediately gratifying (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> something we've kind of danced around while we're talking about prestige and money uh, i don't think we've fully addressed is production value is it not the case that uh prestige television uh, both dramas and comedies look better have higher production value costs more to make or is that too broad of a generalization sure sometimes well, it's, yeah it's hard to say also because co- technology has become so much more available right and that's a big part of it is that the technology to do good lighting is available to more people now than it was. And you can fix lighting problems in post now, which you didn't used to be able to do so much. Certainly, The Big Bang Theory is a very expensive show to make because everybody in it is making a ton of money because it's usually successful. Uh, but I, I would say that... Uh, from, I mean, a te- from a technical perspective, though, is pretty simple to make because of a very well-lit uh, studio set that they shoot on over and over again compared to Master of None, where they go into a dimly lit Brooklyn restaurant uh, and, and need to like put a lot of time in that. Sure, but now I mean now the availability of sort of high, of lightweight, uh, relatively inexpensive uh, digital cameras that can operate in low light make that kind of um, shooting on location you know possible in a way that it it would have not been totally possible. So- it looks expensive, but not might not necessarily. Well, it's, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, but, well, it, there is kind of an art to like making something look. There is a look that is the expensive look, and like the, the people who can get that on <laughs> on a budget are very much in demand. I remember the first time I understood this phenomenon that we're talking about, and it was, and I'm I want to trace the year uh, because 
it was about a movie, <laughs> uh, a movie that we've maybe never talked about. I don't know if you guys have seen this movie, but it's from 1990, and it's a little film called DuckTales, The Legend of the Lost Lamp. Mm. Uh, have you ever seen DuckTales, the movie, Treasure of the Lost Lamp? I'm ashamed to admit, no, the television's uh, show many, many episodes. Can't, of, say, can't say that I have. So even a quick, even if you start quickly sort of image searching things, you can see the, 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 uh, in DuckTales, in the regular DuckTales, what color is the face of Huey, Dewey, and Louie? It's white, right? They yeah, white they're face. all white. Yeah. They're ducks. They have white, they have ducks, they have white cartoon faces. What color is the face of Huey, Dewey, and Louie in the movie? There's shadows, uh-huh. right? like like there's like oh. it's white, but there's shadows that are cast by the objects that like there's a you can find a picture of them hiding under a table that illustrates the concept, right? Where it's like somebody went to the trouble of animating some like depth of field in the movie, some of the lighting in the movie, right? There's sort of more sophisticated visual effects that are animated into the DuckTales movie that are not present in the DuckTales television show of the same era. Yeah, this reminds me of uh, if you watch Star Trek Generations. It's the exact same bridge set as Star Trek The Next Generation, except with the lights turned down low. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I felt this way ironically about Glow, right? And it's ironic because you wouldn't expect the show called Glow to have the lights turned lower, uh, but they are. Where there's just a lot of uh, there's just a lot of lighting that's just sort of just sort of in that medium space where it's sort of dancing on the edge of being too dark, where you can, when when you want to see the sort of pained lines in Alison Brie's face as she as she transforms back and forth between being a woman that Mark Maron finds attractive and a woman that Mike, Mark Maron doesn't find attractive. <laughs> it's a very delicate balance of lighting that makes that possible, as well as a very delicate balance of assholery on his part. Excuse my French. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> yeah, it is, a, like, to make Alison Brie unattractive is a, a, an accomplishment of production design, and uh, uh, like it took many departments working in concert yeah. to uh, um, to make that to make that happen, and like the wardrobe department with all of those French cut leotards. Look, if you've ever looked at television and said like, yes, the level of exploitation is about right, but what we need is uh, French cut leotards, then Glow is the show for you. <laughs> it's it's definitely got them got them in spades. All that all that Jane Fonda workout, uh, you know, jazzercise gear, um, for sure. I mean, I would even venture to say that there are practical and also artistic reasons why certain shows would use very bright lights and certain shows would use that sort of much more specific sort of targeted light that has more shadow to it and more feel, more sort of uh, texture to it. And I mean, one of them is, as you've said, the, that whether you're based off of the familiar sitcom model where the goal is to sort of shoot many takes very fast and you light the whole place so that nobody ever really steps out of their light versus something more like Modern Family, which is itself has much more sophisticated production values and lighting and shooting than a lot of the other sitcoms that it's sort of based on in terms of content, right? Uh, but um, the other reason would be that in a, broad, in, a, in a sitcom where you're making broad jokes you, a lot, you want to be able to see everybody's facial expression and you want to be able to see how everybody's body moves. And you might have sort of like big, abrupt, drastic physical comedy offers, right? That, you know, somebody might go, like Kramer, like doing his thing in the door, right? Imagine that they shoot Kramer walking in the door in Seinfeld, but they shoot it like they shoot Master of None. Uh, like the exposure would be all wrong. Right? Like the lighting would be all wrong. You wouldn't be able to see it. He would go in and out of frame, right? Like it would be it would be painful. It would like not be fun to watch because the 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 shot would be so intimate that that degree of frenetic motion would entirely destroy it, right? Um, and it wouldn't be funny because it would be scary and threatening. <laughs> and so that's one of the reasons why you would use a big, broad, well lit shot for a big broad comedy and a more and if you're using a comedy where you're playing off of kind of more subtle and smaller reactions that's going to feel more cinematic and also because of the idea that like cinematic acting is going to be more reserved uh also probably because of the cost of film and people need to sort of keep their head in the same place uh but uh and all you set up the complicated shots you don't want to screw it up but yeah just this the sort of size of the emotion uh the sort of size of the reaction is going to affect Uh, And there's this idea, and I think this also might be connected to prestige as wealth and prestige as Britishness of like being more reserved and and also just continence, right? And the sort of perception among the wealthy that part of their wealth comes from a sort of continence and self-control, right? That that, um, 
it'll be the same jokes, but they won't make big gestures. They won't fall down. They won't pratfall. There's no, have you seen, do you remember any pratfalls in Master of None? I don't think there are any. Right, that I saw. Yeah, it's not um, a big. Well, it's I, no. it's an awkwardness. I mean, to the certain to a certain extent, some of the awkwardness is physical comedy. But the the um, in the Claire Danes episode, when Claire Danes' husband, who is a uh, an accomplished actor whose name I should know, he's the he's um, uh, the FBI agent on the Americans. Uh, the um, when he throws the the ice cream at the trash can and it misses and splatters all over everywhere, right? Like that's the clo- that's the closest you get to like slapstick or a pratfall at Master of None. Yeah, it's physical comedy, but it's not like broad slapstick. Or like I guess like odd sexual choreography from time to time. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. That's true. Um, yeah. Well, all right. Like uh, this has been an interesting uh, uh, conversation. I'm not sure. I'm not sure we've we've sort of d- developed our final theory. So that's left as an exercise to the listener. Hop into the comments uh, on the show notes at Overthinking It. Head to the website and uh, on the homepage you'll see the little podcast widget. Click show notes. There you'll see the comments section where we can hash out uh, together once and for all and solve finally the question of what uh, what comedy is is prestigious and what it means to uh, what it means to have uh, a prestigious comedy. Um, thanks very much to uh, Mark and Pete for uh, talking, and thank you very much for listening to this episode. Visit us on the web between these many episodes at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. Bare naked, naked juice, seeds of change, silk, Nile spice, mountain sun, natural touch, Muir Glen, Lara Bar, (laughs) 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 happy family, golden temple, garden Garden of Eton. French Meadow, Frute Tabasco, Ella's Kitchen, Draper Valley. (laughs) (laughs) Draper Valley? I just met her valley.